when I wake up in the land of glory. You know what that's called? It's called the afterlife. And one way or the other, everybody one day is going to wake up in the land of glory. The question is whether or not you'll be able to remain in the glory. Today will be the last sermon in the Afterlife series. The last Sunday you're going to have to look into this shadowy figure in the light. Now I'm going to tell you it's not the last time I'm going to talk about the afterlife. I'm just not going to call it session 8 and 9 and 10. This will be it. It is my plan, Lord willing, next week we're going to start, I'm going to start preaching through the gospel of Acts. And I'm just going to say this, you do what you want to, do not miss what's going to happen here next week. Don't miss. If you're scheduled to work, tell them you need to take lunch during this time, all right? If you're in jail, tell them you got to have out for just a couple hours, okay? Just, you got to be here next Sunday because you're going to see something and you're going to hear something of great value as we open the book of Acts. Why? We spent uh, 43 weeks preaching through the gospel of John. And the question after you do the gospel is, now what do I do? The book of Acts explains what the church is supposed to be doing right now. We've got a mission to do. So don't miss next week. The afterlife is coming. When I wake up in the land of glory, the afterlife is coming. And I have a responsibility before God to keep us focused while we wait for it. I want to start today with the scripture that has been the central theme to this entire series. It's found in Colossians 3 verse 1. And here's what it says. Since you have been raised to a new life with Christ. Now, this only applies to believers. Right? What I'm about to read only applies to believers. Since you, since we have been raised to a new life in Christ, what should we be doing? Set your sights on the realities of heaven. Now, if you're a visitor today, I'm going to do what I've been doing over the past several weeks. If you're a visitor today, you turn over to the back of that bulletin, you see a sermon outline. Every scripture I plan to use today is listed, so you can go check it out yourself. Secondly, there's blanks, and when you see these yellow words pop up on the TV, that's the fill in the blanks, and I challenge you, try to stay up with me. See if you can do that. Since you have been raised to a new life with Christ, set your sights on the realities of heaven where Christ right now sits in the place of honor at God's right hand. Think about the things of heaven, not the things of earth. There's where the central theme is. Church, we have been raised to a new life in Christ. And because of that single event, we have been called by God to set our sights on heaven, to set our sights on the afterlife, not this life. Why is it so important? Why is it so important to set our minds and our sights on something that's not here yet? When I stop thinking about the afterlife, when I stop thinking about the future life, I get distracted by my present life. And I remember years ago, I went to a retreat, and the preacher there, his name was Tommy Oaks, and Tommy Oaks uh, did a sermon in which he illustrated the tyranny of the urgent. And I'll never forget that sermon because you know what this present life is? This present life is the tyranny of the urgent. 
Let me illustrate it. If you're at home and you're in the middle of a great event, it doesn't matter whether it's a dinner or whether it's a whatever, and that telephone rings, what's the first thing you want to do? Answer that phone. And you know who's there? A telemarketer. Now, do you want to talk to a telemarketer when you're having a big event? No. But there is the tyranny of the urgent. The tyranny of the urgent is the things of this life have a tendency to grab your attention. And if you're not careful, if you're not focused, the urgent will always take precedent over the important. Now, what that really means is that the cares and the worries of this present life will overshadow the big event that's coming and that you and I have been called to prepare for. The afterlife. I start looking at this earth as the main event when I'm distracted. When the truth, when the truth is this is the main event. This is the main event. However long God gives you on this present earth, let's say he lets you have 120 years. I'm going to tell you what, 120 years here is not going to compare to that. Not at all. That's the big event. Now that doesn't mean, here, here that does not mean that we all walk around like this. You know, the preacher told me, set my sights on things above. So you go to work tomorrow and they fire you because you keep looking at the ceiling. That's not what it means. The book of Acts tells us how the church should live. We're going to focus on that starting next week. I had the privilege. Let me start with a story today. I have had the privilege of speaking at several commencement exercises at high school graduations over the years. And I usually think about, what should I say to high school graduates? What should you say to somebody who's going through this change in life from um, being in school to being independent, expressing their freedom, their choices? And typically, I like to talk about the future. One of my favorite stories that I have shared at those types of graduation services, I want to share with you today. In the, in the last of our series of the afterlife, I want to use this illustration that I used on several high school graduations. The story is about a man named William Gladstone. True story. William Gladstone was one of the greatest public servants in the history of England. He served as prime minister four times in the latter half of the 19th century. Gladstone was a committed Christian who always attended church. He also taught a Sunday school class throughout his entire adult life. In fact, his aim early in his life was to become an Anglican clergyman in England. But after his graduation from Oxford, his strong-willed father insisted that he enter politics. Shortly before he died, Gladstone gave a speech in which he told, he told about being visited by an ambitious young man who sought his advice about life. The lad told the elder statesman that he admired him more than anyone living and wanted to seek his advice regarding his career. What I'm about to read to you is the transcript of that interview. Listen carefully. What do you hope to do when you graduate from college? Gladstone asked. The young man replied, I hope to attend law school, sir, just as you did. That's a noble goal, said Gladstone. Then what? 
I hope to practice law and make a good name for myself, defending the poor and the outcast of society, just as you did. That's a noble purpose, replied Gladstone. Then what? Well, sir, I hope one day to stand for Parliament and become a servant of the people, even as you did. That, too, is a noble hope. Then what? asked Gladstone. I would hope to be able to serve in the Parliament with great distinction, evidencing integrity and concern for justice, even as you did. Then what? asked Gladstone. I would hope to serve, as the, serve the government as Prime Minister with the same vigor, the same dedication and vision and integrity that you did. And then what? asked Gladstone. I would hope to retire with honors and write my memoirs, even as you are presently doing, so that others could learn from my mistakes and my triumphs. All of that is very noble, Mr. Gladstone said. And then what? The young man thought for a moment. Well, sir, I suppose then I will die. That's correct, said Gladstone. And then what? The young man looked puzzled. Well, sir, he answered hesitantly, I've never given that any thought. Young man, Gladstone responded, the only advice I have for you today is this, that you go home and you read your Bible and you think about eternity. Now, I find that to be incredible counsel. And I find it to be the reality of our life travel. We make all the plans and all the plans and all the plans. And one thing we never plan or think about is then what? When all of our plans are finished and when everything is done, then what? We all need to have a then what moment. Everybody in life needs to have a then what moment where we consider our own mortality and we set our sights on then what. This is one of the roles of the church. Listen carefully to what I'm about to say. You know, one of the roles of the church is that we come in together once a week and we have a then what moment. We're out there amongst the tyranny of the urgent all week and we need to come in here and recite and reset and recalibrate, then what? If we lose our focus, Satan will try to do something that he's really good at. You know what he's good at? He can get people to trade the afterlife for the present life. He can get people to trade heaven for the right now earth. And I can tell you, it's a bad deal. But he's good at it. We must come to grips with our own reality. And what is the reality? What is the reality? What is real? We're mortal. We're all mortal. I like to describe it like this. We are spiritual beings. Now you look around the room today and that's not necessarily evident. We look like physical beings, but that's not the reality. That's not the reality. That's not the reality. The reality is we are spiritual beings that happen to have some physical needs. But you know what the world teaches? You know what Satan teaches? It's upside down. Satan teaches that we are 
physical beings that happen to have some spiritual needs. He's wrong. The physical will eventually go to zero. That's our mortality. And unless there's a resurrection, that physical will cease to exist. The resurrection is the promise that the physical combined with the spiritual will experience a resurrection into eternal life. I love how C.S. Lewis puts it, and I've used it on multiple occasions. C.S. Lewis would say something like this, you do not have a soul, and then he'd pause. You have a body. You are a soul. So right now, look at the room today, and I'm going to tell you that contrary to the world's teachings, we are not physical beings that happen to have some spiritual needs that you can satisfy on Sunday morning between 8.30 and 11.30. Because that's what the world wants. Yeah, yeah, you need a little bit of spiritual tuning. Get that on Sunday and live like, the, live like a physical-only person the rest of the week. It's a lie you'll fall victim to the tyranny of the urgent. Jesus puts it this way. This is the truth. In Matthew 6, 28, he says, and why worry? And I want you to know when I, when I read this, what do you mean worry? Jesus says, why worry? Because you know what? Worry is when you focus your attention on something to a, to a high level of degree. Jesus says, don't worry about your clothing. Look at the lilies of the field and how they grow. They don't work or make their clothing. Yet Solomon in all his glory was not dressed as beautifully as they are. And if God cares so wonderfully for the wildflowers that are here today and thrown into the fire tomorrow, he will certainly care for you. Why do you have so little faith? Why is he connecting faith and worry? You know what it is? It's because Worry is the absence of trusting God, the absence of believing Him. Now, here's where I'm going. Verse 31. So Jesus says, so don't worry about these things, saying, what will we eat, what will we drink, and what will we wear? These things dominate the thoughts of whom? Whom? Say it out loud. Unbelievers. What? What are we going to eat? What are we going to drink? What are we going to wear? These things, the tyranny of the urgent, the right now present world, these things dominate the unbelievers. But your heavenly Father already knows your needs. If I look at the modern world, you know what the modern world's chasing? What are we going to eat? What are we going to drink? What are we going to wear? It's all physical. It's all physical. Many people spend their entire existence on earth focusing on three things. Oh, they don't know it. They don't say it. They don't even acknowledge it, that they focus on three things. What am I going to eat? What am I going to drink? What am I going to wear? It's like this panting after the urgent things around you. I've got to get to this. I've got to get to that. You know, if I don't do this, I'm not going to get that. If I don't do this, I'm not going to get that. The tyranny of the urgent. And while you're doing all that, heaven's coming. And the afterlight's coming. And you didn't have any time this last week to deal with that because you're thinking about what you're going to eat, what you're going to drink, what you're going to wear. And Jesus said, don't do it. Don't do it. You need to eat. You need to eat. You need to drink. And I am so thankful all of you have clothes on today. 
But notice that Jesus says that these physical needs dominate the thoughts and the minds of unbelievers. They are not supposed to be dominating your thoughts and your minds. The mind of the believer must be dominated by the future reality of the afterlife in heaven. God knows you have physical needs. In fact, He's the one that created those physical needs and He knows how to meet those physical needs because He, does, he designed your physical needs. But you are not just a physical being that happens to have some spiritual needs. No, it's upside down. You are a spiritual being first that happens to have some physical needs. Jesus makes it clear in the next verse. The next verse, verse 33, Jesus says, Seek the kingdom of God above all else. You know, we trust Him for many things. Will you trust Him for this word? For this sentence? We trust Him for many things. Will you trust Him for this counsel today? Seek the kingdom of God above all else and live righteously and He'll give you, He'll give you your physical needs. This verse, this verse right here defines the life of a believer. That brings me to these final session questions today. Several years ago, I read a book by Randy Alcorn called Heaven. Last Sunday, I asked you six questions that I took from that book to try to illustrate the reality of the afterlife. Last Sunday, I asked six questions. Here they are. Will you be you in heaven? Will we become angels when we get to heaven? Will they call me Terry in heaven? Will we really be perfect in heaven? And what will that glorious body in heaven be like? And will we eat in heaven? Now, we dealt with those six questions last week. Today, I have seven questions also from that same book. Number one, this will be interesting. Will we be male and female in heaven? This question kind of goes along with my first question last Sunday. Which was what? Will you be you in heaven? There are many that have the idea that when we get our glorified body, we will lose our male or female condition. Or we'll be somewhat blended, maybe gender neutral in heaven. Maybe you see the whole nutty, and I'm going to use the word kindly, maybe you see the whole nutty gender neutral thing in America right now in the same light. Maybe you're in the room today and you see this movement of gender neutrality as just a preface or a prelude to what it'll be like in the afterlife kingdom of God. There's a movement in America that tells us that casting off our gender is a pathway to true freedom. Casting off our gender is a pathway to human enlightenment. We can move to a higher level as if gender is a restriction. As if gender is like dragging an anchor and we can't float to a high level because gender is a limiting factor. I don't think so. I don't think so. In fact, let me tell you, I think the current movement is a pathway to the nut house. 
Now listen, I know that in a room with this many people, some of you might have just been offended by that. But I'm telling you this, I am not a coward. In Revelation chapter 21, just this last week, I was studying and I found out that there's a holy city in the afterlife called heaven. And you know who's not going to enter? These are not my words. I don't get to decide. But he said the cowards will not enter. The unbelievers will not enter. Have you ever thought about it? We understand why idolaters are not going to enter. We understand why murderers are not going to enter. We understand why a lot of things are not going to let you enter. But why can't a coward enter? What makes a coward a coward? He will not stand for truth. There's a lot of people in the church who don't understand what the Word of God means. The cowards and the unbelievers will not enter the kingdom of God. Which means that once you come to the knowledge of the truth, and once you know the name, and once you know the truth about the name, you know the Word and you know the name, you've got to stand up. You've got to stand up. The world's watching the world is in darkness, heading for the afterlife of darkness. And they're looking for the church to stand up. You will be you in heaven. You will be you in heaven. And God made us male and female on purpose. And He said it was good. It is not a restriction. It is not an anchor that prevents your enlightenment. Adam and Eve were male and female before the curse. Did you hear me? The curse was not being male or female. They were male and female before the curse. It's not an afterthought. Some people have used this Galatian scripture to make their spiritual point. Galatians 3.26 For you are all children of God through faith in Christ Jesus. And all who have been united with Christ in baptism have put on the character of Christ. Like putting on new clothes. There's no longer Jew or Gentile or slave or free, and here it comes, male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And now that you belong to Christ, you are all true children of Abraham. You are his heirs, and God's promise to Abraham belongs to you. This scripture is not a reference to your eternal glorified body in heaven, but a reference to the fact that your salvation is not based upon your gender. It's not based upon your bloodline or your nationality. It is based upon your faith. I gave blood a couple of weeks ago here at the church. And the Red Cross required me to check a box. Are you male or are you female? I checked male. Is this complicated? Anybody in the room struggling right now? I checked male. I wonder if it won't be very many months that there's going to be male, female, or confused. I'm not a coward. I am not a coward. I'm not going to be a coward. I was not offended by that box. Not at all. Do you think that box restricts my freedom? Do you think that box restricts my ability to experience some kind of life's enlightenment? Or does that box simply reveal, listen, 
reality. That box is reality. But a lot of people don't want to deal with reality. They want to live with some kind of a phantom life. What is the reality? You see, I prefer reality over fiction. I prefer the truth over a lie. I prefer the light over the darkness. And I don't want to be a coward. Was Jesus genderless after the resurrection? No. You see, He had entered the afterlife. His physical human body had been buried and raised. Was He genderless after the resurrection? No. Jesus was a man. It clearly defines that He was a man. He is the Son of God. He was a man before His resurrection. He was a man after His resurrection. And if that offends you, you need to take it up with God, who's also called the Father. And maybe that word offends you as well. I am a man. Listen carefully to what I'm about to say. That fact defines me. I didn't decide to be a man. You know who did? God did. Not me. You don't get to decide. He decides. You don't get to create. You don't get to redefine. He does. He's the creator. He's the definer. He is the alpha and the omega. He is the beginning and the end. He is the first and the last. Men and women are different. Anybody noticed? Because I have. Men and women are different. That's not an accident. It is the design of God Himself. Those differences don't make one of us better than the other. We're just different by God's design. You will be you in heaven. I'm telling you, reality, you will be you in heaven. And I believe that includes your male, female identity, which makes you, you. Number two, I'm glad to get off of that one. Will you wear clothes in heaven? <laughs> I'm not trying to visualize anybody naked in the room today, trust me. I certainly hope so. Can I say that? Will you wear clothes in heaven? The Bible says that Adam and Eve were naked and they felt no shame. But I must tell you something today. I must surely get a glorified body before I can stand before you naked and not feel shame. It had to be super glorified. I'm going to comfort some of you today with this point. When heaven is opened in the book of Revelation, they are wearing clothes. Somebody say hallelujah. hallelujah. <laughs> Revelation 3, 4. Yet you have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their clothes. They will walk with me, what? Dressed in white, for they are worthy. Also in Revelation 6, verse 11, then a white robe was given to each of them, and they were told to rest a little longer until, they could full, until the full number of their brothers and sisters, their fellow servants of Jesus, who were martyred, had joined them. They're dressed in white. Question number three. Will we rest in heaven? Now, I really like this question. Will we rest in heaven? God rested on the seventh day of creation. Not because He was tired, but because He stopped creating. He was finished. 
In the law, God set apart days and weeks for resting. He even rested the earth itself every seventh year. The New Testament announced announce rest in the afterlife. Did you hear me? The New Testament makes an announcement of rest in the afterlife with a promise. And I've got to tell you before I read it, this is one of these chilling scriptures. It is a promise of rest in the afterlife and a warning about people who are not going to get that rest. Here it comes. Hebrews 4 verse 1. God's promise of entering His rest still stands. So we ought to tremble with fear that some of you might fail to experience that rest. For this good news, that God has prepared this rest, has been announced to us just as it was to them. Now to them is reference to Israel in the Old Testament. But it did them no good because they didn't share the faith of those who listened to God. For only we who believe, only we who believe can enter this rest. As for the others, God said in my anger I took an oath. They will never enter my place of rest, even though this rest has been ready since he made the world. We know it is ready because of the place in the Scriptures where he mentions on the seventh day. On the seventh day, God rested from all his work. But in the other passage, God said, they will never enter my place of rest. So God's rest is there for people to enter. But those who first heard this good news failed to enter. Why? Why? The people who first heard that God had a place of rest, eternal rest, they failed to enter because... They disobeyed God. So God set another time for entering this rest. Do you know when it is? So God set another time for entering this rest, and that time is today. God announced this through David much later in the words already quoted. Today, when you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts. Now, if Joshua had succeeded in giving them this rest, God would not have chosen another day of rest still to come. So there is, there is a special rest still waiting for the people of God. Somebody say hallelujah. There is still, right now, today, as of this moment, there is still a special rest still waiting. It's available. It's within your reach awaiting God's people. For all who have entered into God's rest have rested from their labors, just as God did after creating the world. So let us do our best to enter that rest. But if we disobey God as the people of Israel did, we will fall. What's the fall? You won't get the rest. You'll miss it. Notice verse 11 again. Let us do our best to enter that rest in the afterlife. The Apostle Paul puts it like this. He says, run this race to win, not just to finish. A lot of people, listen, a lot of church people, you're in the race just trying to finish. You're not trying to win. I'm talking to you today. Are you giving your best effort right now? Church, I'm asking each one of you, will you ask yourself the question, are you giving your best in this race that ends in the rest that God has promised, there will be no rest in hell. 
That's his point. Faithful service to our King Jesus may mean hard work. Do you hear me? It might mean sacrifice. It more than likely will mean much discipline in your life. But rest is coming. Maybe that'll be our next t-shirt. Rest is coming. Listen to how Jesus describes it. Matthew eleven twenty eight. Then Jesus said, Come to me, all you who are weary, and carry heavy burdens, and I'll give you what? I'll give you what? Say it. I'll give you rest. I don't know about you, but I sometimes get weary. Anybody in here ever get weary? Raise your hand. Some of y'all are lying. I long for this promised afterlife. I long for this rest. In Revelation 14, 13, it says, And I heard a voice from heaven saying, Write this down. Blessed are those who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the Spirit, they are blessed indeed, for they will rest from their hard work, for their deeds will follow them. Question number four. Will we sleep in heaven? That's a good question. Will we sleep in heaven? Some people argue that we won't need to sleep in heaven because we'll, be, we'll have glorified bodies that won't get tired. I've always connected sleep with rest. When I was young, I hated to go to bed. I got grandchildren, and they don't like to go to bed. I get it. And now, at my stage of life, I'd pay good money for a power nap. Sleep to me is one of life's pleasures. You know, I enjoy restful sleep. I'm one of those people that doesn't require a lot of sleep. My night's sleep is usually between six and seven hours. I can't seem to sleep more than seven hours unless it's really a, a weird situation. My body just wakes up. Sleeplessness or troubled sleep is a result of the curse, and I believe that there will be no curse in the afterlife. But here's the question. Did Adam and Eve sleep? I don't know. It doesn't say. The Bible says there will be no darkness in heaven. So if you sleep, would you have to sleep in the light? I'm not sure that we won't get tired. Listen, I'm not sure that we won't get tired from our labor, from our work in heaven, but I know that rest, whether through sleep or not, will wipe away any tiredness and replace it with a vibrancy in this glorified body. So this question number four, will we sleep in heaven? I don't have an answer. I don't know. I can tell you this, you will rest. Will that mean sleep? I don't know. Question number five, will we work in heaven? Some people just can't think about having to work in heaven because their work on earth was so unpleasant, so unfulfilling. To you, the word TGIF has personal meaning. Thank God it's Friday, right? Because you can't wait. Your life, your vocational work has been so unfulfilling that you wake up on Monday, on Monday looking for Friday. You think heaven's going to be like that? I want to think of it like this. In heaven, you will get to work. You won't have to work. You get to work. Was work a result of the curse? In heaven. Was work the result of the curse? Or was work, listen, or was work a sense of purpose? A reason 
to exist. In the beginning, was work a, a curse or was it a purpose? Let's go to Genesis chapter 3, verse 17. And God said to the man, Since you listened to your wife and ate from the tree whose fruit I commanded you not to eat, the ground is cursed because of you, Adam. And all your life, Adam, you will struggle to scratch a living from the earth. This is the curse. All your life, Adam, you're going to scratch the dirt to stay alive. It will grow thorns and thistles for you, though you will eat of its grains. By the sweat of your brow, you will have food to eat until you return to the ground from which you were made. For you were made from dust, and to dust you will return. Struggling and scratching out a living is part of the curse, and I know for a fact the curse is going to be lifted in heaven. God's design, He designed us to live with a purpose, to have a meaning in life. Unemployed people are usually not very happy. Unemployed people are usually not very fulfilled. In Genesis 2.15, this is before the curse. Listen to these words. The Lord God placed the man in the Garden of Eden to tend and to watch over. It's not a curse. Have you ever, has there ever been a job that you would do even if you didn't get paid? I'm looking around the room. I want you to think for a moment. Has there ever been a job that you would do just because you'd love to do it. You'd do it for nothing. Have you ever had a job that you just love to do? That, that even, if, even if you've got no acknowledgement, no thanks, you just, it just, you're, it's something inside of you that wants to do that. Now, I realize a lot of people spend much of their life and never find that. I can tell you I found mine. In fact, it's interesting to me that 18 years ago this weekend, on Derby, Derby weekend in the year two, uh, two, uh, 2000, 18 years ago, I preached my first service here at this church 18 years ago this weekend to 27 people sitting in that first building. And I can tell you, I'm going to be careful how I put this, I would do this even if I didn't get paid, but please keep paying me. <laughs> be careful how you put that. That's why I get a little bit aggravated when I see baseball or football players or basketball players whining about their circumstance when I know there's a whole lot of people that do that for nothing. You see, the curse was not work. The curse was not working, but that work would be sweaty, scratching in the dirt existence on your way to the grave. That's the curse. Instead of a purpose-filled life. Revelation 22.3 No longer will there be a curse upon anything. For the throne of God and of the Lamb will be there and His servants will worship Him. You're going to have a job to do in heaven that you're going to be so crazy about doing that it will be the purpose of your life. Fulfilling, satisfying. Number six. What will be our relationships? What will they be like in heaven? Christians have always longed for restored fellowship with those who have gone on before us. Paul says we grieve about those who have died, but we do not grieve like those who have no hope. 
I believe you and I will establish new relationships in heaven. But we will also renew former relationships as well. Is there someone you long to see again? So I want to pause in the service for a moment. I want to do something. Is there somebody right now that comes to your mind that you can't wait to see again? I want you to maybe just close your eyes for a moment and visualize the moment you'll open your eyes and there they'll be. Maybe the last time you saw them, they were in a frail, dying body. Maybe the last time you saw them, they were in a wheelchair. Maybe the last time you saw them, they were sunken in face and that won't be what they look like the next time. So the first person that came to my mind was my grandfather. He was in a wheelchair the last several years of his life. He won't be in a wheelchair. I look forward to that. You're going to be you in heaven. You're going to get to see those who went ahead of you and blazed a trail in front of you. They're going to be there. Can you imagine that moment? My heart jumps at the thought of looking him in the eye. Is there someone you've always wanted to meet in heaven? Now, I thought about that. I took some time, and I, just, and I picked two names, two names. I don't know why. If you ask me again later, I might change the two names. But the two names that came to me first is Moses and Jeremiah. Moses. Can you imagine sitting down and talking to Moses over coffee? Can you? Can you imagine sitting? You've got plenty of time. Say, well, you can't get to him for a thousand years. The line's backed up. But you've got time. Can you imagine sitting down drinking coffee with Moses? What could he tell you? The second one's Jeremiah. And I guess for Jeremiah, the reason was he's called the weeping prophet because I don't know very many people that suffered like he had to suffer to be a man of God. But he won't be suffering when I meet him. Some people falsely assume that all of our attention on heaven will be on God. Listen to what I'm saying. Some people falsely assume that all of our attention in heaven will be on God and none, none will be on any relationships with each other. God will be first, yes. And he desires to be first. And by the way, he doesn't just want to be first when you get to heaven. He wants to be first right now. But he designed us for fellowship. He designed us to get to know each other. In fact, one of the primary purposes of the church right now is that you and I will have fellowship on our way toward the promised land. You will know them in heaven, those people who have gone before you, and you'll be able to spend an eternity catching up on lost time with those who have gone before you. The disciples recognized Jesus after the resurrection and in fact, guess what? They ate meal together. They ate fish together. I'm going to take it a step further. I don't even think when you get to heaven you're going to have trouble remembering names, which I have a lot of trouble with on this side. Question number seven. Last one. Will there be marriage in heaven? This has always been a big question. 
There was a group of Sadducees, and you've got to understand what Sadducees are. Sadducees do not believe in an afterlife. Okay? You've got to get that before I read it. There was a group of Sadducees who came to Jesus, and they tried to trick him about the afterlife. So it's kind of funny that they're trying to trick him about an afterlife that they don't even believe in. So here's the scripture, Matthew 22. That same day, Jesus was approached by some Sadducees, religious leaders who say there is no resurrection from the dead. They pose this question to Jesus. Teacher, Moses said if a man dies without children, his brother should marry the widow and have a child who will carry on the brother's name. Now pause. Yes, that's in the law. Do you know that? If you were Jewish and if you had this situation happen, if, if you were a bunch of brothers and you married a woman, and the, and the brother died, the other brother would have to go marry her and give her a child. You think we've got messed up situations right now. Verse 25. So here's their question. Well, suppose there are seven brothers. The oldest one married and then died without children, so his brother married the widow. But the second brother also died, and the third brother married her. This continued until all seven of them. Now, let me say, pause. First thing I'd do is call the sheriff and check her medicine cabinet. But that's a second story. Number 27, last of all, the woman also died. So tell us, Jesus, whose wife will she be in the resurrection? For all seven were married to her. So whose wife will she be? Jesus replied, I love his reply. Your mistake is that you don't know the scriptures. Where's Jesus given authority? Your mistake is you don't know this. That mistake still happens today, by the way. Your mistake is you don't know the scriptures and you don't know the power of God, which, by the way, is in the scriptures. For when the dead rise, they will neither marry nor be given in marriage. In this respect, they'll be like the angels in heaven. Jesus makes it clear that at the resurrection, they will neither marry nor be given in marriage. Now, I'm going to tell you, there'll be two classes of people in the room right now. Some of you have, will find distress at the thought that you won't be with your mate in heaven. And some of you are going to want to say hallelujah, but I'd say keep it down. <laughs> Bad idea. I am going to be in trouble after today. <laughs> I must tell you, there will be marriage in heaven, though. We will be part of a marriage, one marriage, between Christ and His bride. The one flesh marital union we know on earth is a signpost. Listen, it is a signpost pointing to our eventual relationship with Christ Himself. Once we reach heaven, that signpost will no longer be necessary. Our marriage with Christ in heaven will be so satisfying that I assure you it will surpass any of the greatest expectations you ever had from your earthly marriage. In fact, many of the troubled marriages that I have experienced in my lifetime come from this root that many people struggle with marriage itself because they believed falsely that their mate could satisfy them completely. Ain't gonna happen. It can't happen. Not in this life. 
Don't ask your mate, marriages, don't ask your mate to do what only God can do to fulfill you completely. That's God's role. And He will fulfill that role in due time. So I close today. We could talk forever about the wonders of God, His plan for us in the afterlife, and still not grasp, still not understand it. 1 Corinthians 2.9 says, this is what the Scripture means when they say, no eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind has imagined what God has prepared for those who love Him. You will be you in heaven. Let me summarize. You won't become an angel. You'll be you, and people will call you by your name. You will have a morally perfect, glorified, eternal body that will not live under a curse. You will be morally, morally perfect, but in a forever flesh. You will eat at the table of the wedding feast of the Lamb and drink from the streams of living water. You will retain your identity, your gender, and your memories, for they define who you are, but you'll just be getting started. You'll be clothed with the white robe of righteousness, and you will rest from all your burdensome labor on earth. You will serve God in an assigned task that will be more fulfilling than anything you could have ever imagined on this present earth. You will reestablish relationships with family and friends that have died before and make new relationships, and all of them will last forever. You will experience oneness with Christ in the great marriage supper of the Lamb that will surpass any oneness you could have ever achieved in any relationship on this present earth. Now, do you see why God told us to set our sights on heaven? Instead of the earth. All of these things are awesome, but I'm going to tell you what the most awesome thing about heaven is. You know what it is. Revelation 22, 4. And they will see His face. In that book called Heaven by Randy Alcorn, there is a quote. I want to read it to you. Here's what he says. If my wedding is on the calendar and I'm thinking of a person, if my wedding is on the calendar and I'm thinking of the person I'm going to marry, I shouldn't be an easy target for seduction. Likewise, when I've meditated, meditated on heaven, sin is terribly unappealing. It's when my mind drifts from heaven that sin seems attractive. Thinking of heaven leads inevitably to pursuing holiness. Our high tolerance for sin testifies of our failure to prepare for heaven. Are you prepared for the afterlife? Are you ready? It's coming one way or the other. I remember having a conversation here in this room with Bob Russell and a separate conversation with David Reagan about a certain thing. And we, all three, immediately concluded the same point. Here, here it is. Describes much of the Nineveh Christian church. When a church, when a group of people, when a group of people legitimately and sincerely live their life with an expectancy of the return of Christ, two things will naturally occur. If you're in the room today and you believe the return of Christ is imminent and that you should prepare for that return, two things will happen automatically. You will purify your life from sin and you will tell somebody the good news of Jesus. 
And I tell you what, I sit back and I think, that's the mission of the church. That's it. That's it. When you legitimately believe that heaven's coming, Jesus is coming, the afterlife's coming, tick-tock, tick-tock, it's closer now than it was yesterday, then I feel a sense of urgency to focus on two things. One, I've got to purify my own life. And two, I've got to tell somebody. This is my last thought for today. I know who I was before Jesus. I haven't forgotten. And I know who I am now in Christ. I was dead, and now I'm alive. I was lost, and now I'm found. I was blind, and now I can see. Jesus has saved me from death, eternal separation in hell. He saved me. You and I are traveling together on a large round ball called earth around the sun. There's been a whole lot of people take this ride on this earth around the sun. And you know what? Listen, listen, listen. They're not here anymore. Been a whole lot of people take the same ride you're taking right now. And they're not here anymore. Where are they? Then what? This is a then what moment. One day you and I will leave this earth. Then what? The afterlife's coming. I'll ask Chad to come out for the invitation. The afterlife's coming. Heaven's coming. Hell's coming. God's coming. Are you ready? Jesus says, above all else, set your sights. Set your goal. Set your attention on things above. The kingdom. So today we're going to sing a song, an invitation. And today, if the Holy Spirit is working on you today, the only answer is yes, Lord. You answer Him immediately and you, ins- you answer Him completely. Today is the day. Let's stand. Yeah.